first time and try and show a video and all this other stuff all at once. So it's been quite a quite an uh, afternoon and evening. So we'll see what happens. I can't guarantee perfect flow, but we'll we'll get through it. So we talked about doing something a little different this week and taking a bit of a break from just going the verse by verse study through Genesis and spend a little time. Oh, sorry. I know. Got nothing like God's Word. It's awesome. But sometimes it's good to take a little break of studying God's Word itself and actually study about God's Word. Study about um, what we see in this world, the evidence we have. And as the title suggests, is it just a fun fictional story or is this historical fact? Good answer. Give that guy a gold star. Well, Why? Do we believe it to be a historical fact? And you could say, well, because the Bible says so, and that works for us. And one of the things I want to bring to light as well is, yes, we walk by faith. And yes, ultimately, it's a matter of faith. Because the last time I checked, none of us were there when the flood happened with a video recorder uh, to get it down so we could say, here's video proof, right? Were you there, Tom? No? Okay. Maybe you lost it? No. But we, we, we can't prove it but we can look at the evidence. And here's the thing. There's always this balance. There's this um, sort of this weighing out between faith and intellect, right? We have things that we can know. We know our faith is rational because it it stands up to what we see in the world around us. And it's funny because just this week, actually, I was uh, driving in the car with Caleb, my five-year-old boy, and he, we were talking about Noah's flood because I'm not sure why it came up, probably because we were talking about the study we were going through. And it was interesting because he said, now, is that really real, Dad? He actually asked me, did that actually happen? Or is that, that's just a story, right? I'm like, no, no, it's not just a story. It actually happened. And he's like, it did? I'm like, yes, it did. Where did you miss the memo? <laughs> yes, it actually happened. And he was, kind of, he was kind of surprised at first. I'm like, no, the Bible, those stories we read about in the Bible, that's history. That really happened. We don't just talk about them to sort of learn a lesson from them or to get some sort of a proverb out of it or some nice parable. We're reading history here, and it's meant to be read that way. And there is some poetry and some parable in Scripture, but we, that's also plain when that's being done. Um, but this is hist- history. But he was kind of surprised by that. But one of the things that I, I want to talk about tonight, and I felt it was worth taking a bit of a break from the normal uh, format, is there, there is a point and there's a very valid place in our walk with Christ to take time to study about God's Word, to take time to study about whether or not our faith is rational, whether or not there is some substance to it. Because if you ask a Buddhist, they believe 100% that they have the truth, right? Correct? If you ask a Mormon, they think they have the truth. If you ask a Muslim, do they think they have the truth? And then if you ask a Christian, what do we say? Well, we have the truth, gosh darn it. Well... And if, if all we can ever say is because the Bible says so, um, I, would, I would challenge you that there's something missing. There's something missing. Not because you're going to ever argue someone into heaven, but for two main reasons, really. So that you can walk in this world that is contrary to God, in a society that teaches in our educational system that we don't need God, we got here without God, and all this we see around us is just random chance. So you can, you can exist in that kind of a world, and when you're challenged and confronted on your faith, you can give an answer for the faith that you have. You can, you can stand on your own faith. You won't be easily shaken when, when some clever 
uh, evolutionary scientist throws all these supposed facts and, and fancy words at you, and you have nothing to say other than, well, the Bible says so. Um, that's, that's shaky ground to stand on. And a lot of, uh, we're seeing a lot of young, I think that's one of the main reasons we see a lot of young people who the minute they go off to college and their, their uh, revered professor tells them there's no such thing as God, they don't know how to answer. They have nothing other than what they heard in you know, Sunday school, which was, well, the Bible says so. Really? Well, I don't believe the Bible. So now what do you got for me? You know, and, and their faith is completely shaken to its core. And so there's a place for knowing why we believe what we believe. Not just knowing what we believe, but why do we believe it. And so that's why I believe it's valid to take time to do this. Another quick story I'll share with you in starting off. We had some friends a while back, and uh, one of uh, was a husband and wife uh, that we used to hang out with from time to time, and they were actually helping us with our house when we were doing some painting and things and fixing it up early on. And his name was Dave, and, and Dave was not a believer. Uh, his wife was. And, and it was a tough situation, a real tough situation. And we would talk about God from time to time, and he was pretty open to talking about it, but he'd talk about it more like, well, that's nice for you, that's kind of cute, you know, that's okay. You know, he was, he was, um, he was t- very tolerant and very nice about it, very polite about it. But uh, it wasn't until one evening when we got into the whole topic of evolution versus creation, or whether Noah's flood was real, or the Genesis account could be taken at face value, that his real objections and concerns came out. And we started really talking about the evidence that we see in the world around us, some of the things we're going to talk about tonight, of creation and being a young earth, and that the flood actually happened, and all kinds of different things that we see in this physical universe that do point to a young earth, that do point to a designer, a creator, all of those things, some of the things we've already talked about in these previous studies, and he was blown away. He was, he was speechless, he, and he was like, I have never heard any Christian uh, def- defend their faith in a rational way before. This is the first time I've ever talked to someone who could actually give me like facts and information instead of just because God says so or because the Bible says so. And he began to open up and wanted to know more. And he would ask me to pray with him sometimes. And, and he began seeking. And I, you know, I, I've lost touch with him now. I don't know where he's at. But God was definitely working in his life. And I wouldn't be surprised if he has given his life to the Lord by now. Uh, I would love to reconnect with him. But what opened him to it was just pointing him to the reality that we have a rational faith that isn't just blind faith. It isn't just we believe it and we ignore all that we see around us. We actually, what we believe is in line with what we see around us. Amen? So, would you agree it's valid to talk about? Spend, spend one evening talking about it. Okay, we're on the same page there. So, first of all, there are a lot of different things we can look at as to whether or not this account we see here in Genesis of this great flood is actually real. And... We've gone through Genesis 6 to 8, kind of the whole account of the flood, and reading about how the basic premise of it is God decided to judge the entire earth. It had become so corrupt, it had become so rebellious that this flood was going to be his ultimate judgment, and he was going to preserve one family, one godly heritage, Noah's family. And we talked all about that. And so he told Noah, build this ark. It took him about 100 years to do it, 120 years. And uh, they got on the ark, flood came, flooded the entire earth over the highest mountains. It wasn't a local flood, according to Scripture. It was a global flood. And it says that the, you know, the topography of the earth uh, changed dramatically. We see how 
uh, the waters from the heavens fell. We see that water canopy that's talked about in the firmament earlier on. seems like that's when that may have collapsed as well. We can see a lot of things change. And it mentioned in uh, the last chapter that talks about how uh, when Noah got out onto dry land, God tells him that he promises to them that while the earth remains from now on, there's going to be seed time and harvest here in chapter 8. At the end of chapter 8, he says, there's going to be cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so he's sort of indicating that it looks like these seasons and all these, these changes have now been initiated because of the catastrophe of the flood. But, it's not, but he's kind of given a promise at the same time, saying it's going to be this way until the end now. This is, this is, this is what you're going to have to deal with. And so that's the story. So first of all, uh, one of the things I, I don't believe I have on my slide is one of the things we can first of all look at as far as evidence, because let's talk about it. Um, is, do we, are we the only ones who have this crazy story? Are we the only ones who think that there was a flood uh, that, that destroyed the entire earth? turns out, no. No, we're not. There are many accounts of floods throughout the entire world. Oh, and I was going to talk about this first. Why don't we talk about this real quick since it's here? See, I told you I'm not used to doing slides. All right, another reason why we're doing this, and this is uh, an important point. When it says, be a Berean, that doesn't mean being a fan of Berean bookstores. That's actually talking about the people of Berea. It comes from Acts 17, and it says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness, and then they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether or not these things were so. Therefore, many believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. In other words, there was great fruit. And one of the reasons is because they studied and they checked it out and they searched the scriptures. And so this is another one of the reasons why I believe part of it, a part of what we're called to do as Christians is to study and to search out and to find out not only what do we believe, we should know exactly what we believe, but we should also know why we believe it. We should know the basis of it. So coming back to where I was, stories. Uh, There are stories all throughout the world, all throughout the entire globe there are stories in, in almost every culture of a global flood, and they bear pretty uncanny resemblance to the account we see here in Genesis. Um, the Sumerians and ancient Babylonians over in India, uh, the Orient, all throughout the Pacific Island regions, all these areas have their own version of the flood. And this graph kind of shows us these different cultures and how it compares to the biblical account. The green box represents basically a full representation of the biblical idea, the orange uh, triangle shows that it partially does. And you can see a lot of the basic tenets, such as there being a favored family, that there was an ark provided, it was destruction by water, it was the entire earth, there were some humans saved, there were animals saved, universal destruction. A lot of these same basic um, facets of the story of, of this account in Genesis remained intact throughout all these cultures. Well, why would that be? Why would that be? Why would it be that somehow all these different people groups all over the world have this same story of some great flood? Well, I would say that probably because they all came from the same family, the one that got off the ark. And as they spread out all over the earth, that story continued to be passed on through generations and through cultures, and sometimes by oral tradition, sometimes in writing. And we have, we have one account that we can truly count on, and that's God's word. God's word is the perfect account, the most complete account that God wanted to give us. But there are many other of man's records 
in all of these different cultures throughout the entire world, not just in one local area, throughout the entire world, that say, yes, there was a global flood, and it was God or some supreme being judging the earth, and he did preserve a special family through it. Pretty amazing. And so that gives us a pretty good indication that we're on to something here, that this might indeed be a historical account, not just somebody's local legend. Obviously, if it's throughout the entire world, there's probably some substance to it. And I think we're all on the same page with that, that there is. How likely is it that there would be people groups that would share independently such a similar story? Not likely at all. So we're going to talk a little bit about fossils and some other cool evidences we see all around the world. So first of all, let's talk about, well, what would you expect to see? Um, If there was a global flood all around the earth, well, what evidence would we expect? What, what, what would we see? Well, we probably, uh, one of the things that uh, Ken Ham likes to say that I think is pretty well put, he says, you probably would expect to see billions of dead plants and animals buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. That's what you'd expect to see, and turns out we do. All over the earth, in every part of, of land mass that we can find, in, and in the ocean, we find billions of dead plants and animals buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. So, it seems to be pretty consistent with what you would expect to find. And so fossils, first of all, there are about a million fossil deposits known to exist worldwide. So there's a lot of fossils showing up all over the place. What are fossils? How are they created? You can obviously read the slide. But the idea is any honest scientist will admit to the basic tenets of how a fossil is created. It happens quick. There must be a quick burial. There's water and there's sediments in there. And there's pressure and it creates a fossil. It has to happen quickly. And obviously one of the reasons for that is they compare it to the story of the bison and the buffalo early in the great, uh, in the days of America as America was being settled. And we could ride on a train across the country and as you'd cross the plains and see all these buffalo, they would stop and you could take your rifle out and just blow a bunch of them away until you ran out of ammo basically. And then they'd just drive on and leave all of them dead there. Pretty tragic. But did those bison and buffalo become fossilized? Can we find fossils of bison and buffalo all over the countryside? No, why not? Other things ate them, right? They just laid there, they got eaten, they got decomposed. And so most things, when normal processes take place, are not fossilized. It takes a catastrophic event to fossilize something. It it does not happen just by slow progress over great spans of time as slowly layers are laid down by normal uh, types of weather. It must happen quickly, catastrophically. Otherwise, obviously, it decomposes completely or is eaten by something and spread out all over the landscape. And so it's interesting because there's a bit of a hypocrisy here in the secular scientific community because when you read about how they date these rock layers in which they find the fossils, they talk about these millions and millions of years in each of these layers that they represent. Millions and millions of years. There's millions and millions of years in this layer hundreds of millions of years in this layer, and all these fossils that exist, and they, and they sort of they talk about how all, eons of change and all these things that happened during this period of time, and that it created these fossils, and then somewhere else they sort of admit backhandedly that, oh yeah, by the way, fossils are created by catastrophic events, they have to be buried quickly, by water and sediment, and blah, blah, blah. Yet that doesn't add up, does it? Well, if this is millions of years, this layer, and it's got all these fossils in it, and fossils must be created quickly, 
through pressure and water and sedentary layers and all this, well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? That doesn't even add up. It's one or the other. Which one is it? And the, one of the things about, we have to see the Grand Canyon here. This is a, obviously a point of great controversy. There's only two ways to look at it. Did it take a long period of time with a little amount of water, or did it take a short amount of time with a lot of water? Obviously, it's one or the other. One or the other, most likely. Our narrative is what? Short amount of time, lots of water. Well, where did the water come from? Well, Noah's flood, the Great Deluge, as it's called. But you look at these layers, and one of the things that creationists point out, and I think makes a whole lot of sense, is you find that over time, there's this little thing called erosion. Anybody heard of erosion? Yeah. What do you think would happen to landscape over millions of years of just normal weather conditions? It tends to erode things. I mean, you see that our highway has fallen off the mountain several times, has it not? And it takes months to repair, and it's a pain in the neck, and we've got to drive all the way around. It doesn't take millions of years for the highway to fall off and for the landscape to change dramatically. And yet, we see here these sedentary layers that are laid down and carved out in Grand Canyon are basically completely flat. We don't see a bunch of change and dips and all these all these movement carved out in them because of it being eroded. And erosion is now becoming one of the pivotal discussions in modern day science over, over the age of the earth because what would the earth look like? How tall would our mountains even be if it, there was truly hundreds of millions of years of erosion that they had to stand up to? And, and the argument is, well, if we just simply look at the rates of erosion today, wind the clock back, the, the most, most of the mountains wouldn't even exist based on the rate of erosion today. And so just by looking at our mountains and how long we know they've been there, you can't, you, erosion itself undermines the whole date premise. So erosion is a critical factor in determining these things. So evolutionary scientists would have us believe that it could only happen slowly over millions of years. But we do have some current evidence to the contrary. We got the privilege back in the 80s of watching it happen before our eyes. Mount St. Helens. And this is a picture of Mount St. Helens, two different angles. We see these canyons, all these layers laid down in a very, very short amount of time, a matter of hours. Canyons hundreds of feet deep, hundreds of layers, various sedentary layers laid down in a matter of hours, not millions of years, not even dozens of years, hours. And so we got to witness firsthand how it could possibly happen in a short amount of time with a lot of force, a lot of water, a great mudslide went through here, and now we have a basically a miniature version of the Grand Canyon in a matter of hours, less than a day. And we've got a small-scale Grand Canyon going on here. And there's a video I'm going to attempt to show. We'll see if I pull it off or not. That's a miracle right there. On May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens, located 95 miles south of Seattle, Washington, erupted. The eruption was triggered by an earthquake centered beneath the mountain that measured 5.1 on the Richter scale. The lateral blast swept out the north side of Mount St. Helens at 300 miles per hour, with temperatures as high as 660 degrees Fahrenheit and the power of 24 megatons of thermal energy, it snapped 100-year-old trees like toothpicks and stripped them of their bark. Before the famous eruption at Mount St. Helens, scientists were mostly familiar with slow-acting examples of geologic change. But at Mount St. Helens, 
Geologists watched the Earth's surface change quite rapidly. Icebergs were buried in hot avalanche material. They melted and formed badlands in days. Eruptions on May 18 and June 10 produced fine layers in hours. On June 10, mud flows cut zigzag canyons 100 feet deep in soft sand and mud, complete with perpendicular side canyons, canyons that are reminiscent of the geography of Grand Canyon, only 40 times smaller and clearly produced within hours. Mud flows over the following decade cut hundreds of feet into solid rock in just days of cutting time. Fallen trees formed a log mat on the surface of Spirit Lake and dropped bark to the bottom of the lake, accumulating up to three feet of bark peat in just a couple years. And vertically floating logs sinking to the bottom of the lake resulted in buried trees in only a decade similar to the trees of Yellowstone's fossil forest, which are also buried in volcanic layers. Even though Mount St. Helens is a very small catastrophe compared to the flood, or the major catastrophes immediately following the flood, it provides a better clue to what happened in those times than the slow geologic processes which are most commonly seen in the present. Pretty good, huh? Good little snapshot. There's some great videos on the ICR website or the Answers in Genesis website. There's a lot more, so I encourage you if you have time. And there is a, I forgot to mention, there's a resource. Stop, YouTube. <laughs> All right, so yeah, there's a lot of additional information out on the information booth. By the way, I put a, together a one-sheet uh, resource uh, page for you that has some of the websites where I've found some good information. So you can do some digging as well as information about the uh, Creation Museum down in San Diego. Uh, there's also obviously the Answers in Genesis facility, Creation Museum out in Tennessee. Uh, but there's some great information out there, so if you want to grab that, it's right on the bar, the information booth. So moving on, fossils, fossil graveyards. We've talked about how fossils are created. You know, there's, a, there's fossil graveyards all over the world. And everywhere you look where these fossil graveyards are, as the name indicates, it's these piles of animals or plants that seem to be catastrophically shoved into one place and buried rapidly, and it looks like a violent situation. Many of them uh, having, you know, still pregnant with babies or having food in their mouths and things like that, like clearly they're interrupted in the midst of their daily lives through some catastrophic event. There's this place, as you can see up here, and the Karoo deposit in South Africa has over 800 estimated million fossils in one area. It's about a 20,000 uh, foot thick sediment buildup. And it runs for hundreds of miles. It's a massive area that is built up. Well, obviously, that would take a pretty large amount of water and, and movement to create something that massive, that huge. Some others, nautiloids of the Grand Canyon. Um, this is a really important one here. Actually, have a specimen provided by Marlene here. These are some nautiloid fossils, and these are from where again? Morocco. These are from Morocco, Africa. Okay, so these aren't actually from the Grand Canyon. You're not allowed to take anything out of the Grand Canyon. Wouldn't want you sharing any of the evidence. 
but uh, you're not allowed to take anything out of there. But these exist all throughout the Grand Canyon. Matter of fact, I'm going to read to you um, a little bit about these nautiloids in the Grand Canyon. There's an amazing story of this discovery and the debate over the age of the earth just because of these nautiloids' existence there in the Grand Canyon. They were an extinct marine creature that resembled squids living in hard chambered shells. Paleontologists have known about nautiloids for a long time, but until the past decade, decade, these fossils have been thought to be extremely rare. However, research by Dr. Stephen Austin from the Institute for Creation Research has revealed an extensive nautiloid bed running the whole length of the Grand Canyon and extending all the way to Las Vegas. Pretty long uh, deposit. These, all of these nautiloids are also all uh, facing the same direction as if moved by a current or swimming in the exact same direction. That seems kind of odd if it took millions of years to lay them all down. It is now estimated that there are millions of nautiloid fossils in the Grand Canyon just alone. How could such an extensive display of fossils remain hidden for so long? Well, to be fair, they're in the depths of the Grand Canyon on rock ledges in the Redwall Limestone, so not exactly an easy place to go. However, they are accessible and easily visible to the trained eye. So why haven't geologists been asking the right questions all this time? Dr. Austin believes it's because uh, the traditional geologists, they're not looking for the right answers. He says that you find what you're looking for. Because of his worldview, which includes the historical accuracy of Genesis flood, Dr. Austin believed there should be evidence of the flood left in the rock layers of the earth. Through some rather serendipitous events, careful attention to detail, and faith in God, the discovery was made. So it's actually a creation scientist who found this whole Nautilus um, uh, fossil bed. The significance of this find is truly staggering, both in its extent and implications. The sheer numbers indicate a mass kill event, and the orientation of the fossils indicated burial under a fast-moving laminar flow. In other words, it's all one direction. This totally demolishes the traditional interpretation of the slow and gradual deposition of the Redwall limestone under shallow, placid seas. So clearly, there is a ton of evidence that this happened rapidly, not slowly. And you see some pictures there. Also, there's a fossil dig in Argentina in 2014. This is an interesting one because I had a conversation with um, a paleontologist and some archaeologists down in uh, the San Bernardino County Museum right here when they opened their new dinosaur exhibit. And, of course, you won't find anything about six days of creation there. What you will find is the typical millions and billions of years and all those dates. And there was one of their... One of the curators and speakers there, I was talking with him, and he was talking about this particular dig, because when I was talking with him, it was actually last year, it had just recently been kind of published, and they're saying there's a real problem with this discovery. See, they found all these dinosaurs in one place, and most of them were whole skeletons of dinosaurs. And the problem was, these, these dinosaurs were previously believed to have lived tens of millions of years apart. They weren't supposed to have ever met. They weren't supposed to have ever seen each other. And here they are all tangled up and smashed into this one place and fossilized. That kind of messes things up. So he was just kind of like wrestling with this with me. Like it's, it's like it's this amazing discovery and they're not sure what to do with it. I'm like, can I take the platform real quick? I can give you the story. It'll take a few minutes. and save you a lot of trouble, you know. Uh, but, you know, of course, that's not, that's not an option down there. Um, but it was just funny to see him wrestling with this, trying to figure out some sort of solution without God and without the Bible. 
And, and, and it's just not, it wasn't possible. It wasn't possible. The only explanation for things like that is a massive flood globally. They would move things like that from various geologic regions and make a, a fossil deposit like that. Um, so pretty interesting. Petrified trees. We saw them mentioned in that video. We have petrified trees obviously all over the world. Uh, pretty cool. Basically, the minerals have replaced the organic material and has turned them into a rock that represents the tree that we once stood. We see them all around. But there's a little problem with some of them. We have these trees that apparently are hundreds of millions of years old growing right through millions of years of layers of rock. How in the world could that happen? This is a real problem there. Obviously, these petrified trees could not have stood for millions of years and somehow slowly uh, these rock layers were formed around them. Clearly, these, these layers must have been laid down quickly, I guess being logical if you want to do such a thing. Uh, it appears that these layers were laid down very rapidly around this tree, and this tree was fossilized standing in position because of a massive catastrophic event. Again, another problem for those who would like us to think that the Earth is millions and millions of years old. And that's the last slide of those things. Cool. All right. So looking around this great planet of ours, we can find that there is a whole lot of evidence for this flood, this biblical account that God did indeed judge the earth with a global flood and that it was part of his plan of redemption that he saved a family, that he put them in a big boat, all of these things. And we see this evidence everywhere. And I, you know, I can't wait until the day that we, uh, we see that discovery of pieces of the ark. I believe that's going to happen. They're gonna, at some point, I'm sure they'll find it. Uh, for whatever reason, God hasn't allowed it to happen. But it's just a matter of time, in my opinion. So we have, in addition to these geologic records and these things that we can examine that are clearly consistent with the flood account, we also have written records uh, as we talked about throughout cultures, we have archaeological finds that uh, reference this event, and we see the geologic, uh, the massive topography and geologic changes that would have happened in an event like that, both on land and in the sea. And in sort of wrapping up some of these things, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, a verse in 1 Corinthians 9, if you guys want to join me there. 1 Corinthians 9, picking up in verse 19. And I just want to encourage us to find the balance in these things. There's a lot of great information. And honestly, I love to debate and talk with people about the validity of our faith. It's really fun because we have the truth. We actually do. And when we look at the world around us, the evidence backs us up. And so it is fun to be equipped and to know these things. But going full circle to how we started, um, I want to encourage you that we still need to study the scriptures themselves. We still need to believe that they are God's word from cover to cover. And ultimately, at the end of the day, God says it in his word, that's good enough for me. That's good enough for me. And I'm not knowing that I'm not going to argue anyone into heaven is important because it still has to come from a heart of love. We still have to share the gospel with the intent knowing that it's a spiritual work. It's not an intellectual work. We have to let God's Spirit work in people. We still have to pray and seek for God to use us in that manner and be prepared 
with information like this, as well as knowing God, knowing God's word, God's word is the ultimate thing. And this passage in 1 Corinthians 9 exhorts us. Paul is exhorting uh, the Corinthians in this letter what his goal is in each person he meets in every culture and every person he talks to, whether Jew or Greek. He's explaining, this is how I share the gospel. This is why I share the gospel. And it gives us a good template to follow. It gives us a good model when it comes to the head knowledge meeting with the spiritual things. It says, for though I am free, I'm reading it, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. And to those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without law towards God, but under the law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. And I become all things to all men, that I might be, by all means, save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. What is Paul saying here? What is he exhorting? He's saying, listen, I've prepared myself. When I, when I spend time with Jews, listen, we talk about the, the, the Torah. We talk about our, our genealogy and history. And I, and I speak as a Jew. I meet them on their level. When I talk with the Greeks and with, with the Gentiles, I, I don't talk to them as, a, as some high and mighty Jew. I get down on their level, and I know about them and their culture, and I care. And that takes preparation. That takes understanding. And that's where, where uh, you know, your faith kind of puts on working shoes, and you, and, you, and you actually prepare, and you actually get to know the people you're seeking to minister to. If you're going to talk to people who are into science or into geology who believe in the evolutionary thought, it stands to reason that you should know a little bit about it, wouldn't you say? You should know a little bit about where our faith comes in and, and what re- the reasonable nature of our faith. For the what purpose? Paul says, for the purpose that I might save some. That in all these things he seeks to win people to Christ. That he is as prepared as possible to be as effective as possible no matter who he's talking to. That's his heart behind it. And when that's your heart, if your goal isn't to win the argument but to win their soul, that's the two different objectives, isn't it? It's okay to not win the argument, but if they can tell you genuinely care and that you are immovable in your faith and that you know what you believe and why you believe it, they're going to want what you have. God's Spirit will use that. I have no doubt. God's Word is faithful, and this He does for the gospel's sake. And do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives a prize? And then He tells us, how are we all supposed to run? Some of, we're, some of us sometimes tend to run just to kind of survive the race, don't we? It's like, if I can just get to the finish line, I don't care if I'm 101st person. You know, but he tells us we're supposed to train and prepare as if we plan on taking gold, as if we plan on taking first place. We plan on winning the race, not just surviving the race, to win it. We're all spiritual Olympians. We're all meant to be prepared and to be well-studied. As it says in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so we need to be studied. We need to know these things. This information is great, and again, you're not going to argue anyone into heaven. I'm not saying that this is going to save people just because you have this knowledge, but it is going to reinforce you, what you, the faith you stand on, 
And when people do have those questions, like how in the world can you possibly believe that Noah's flood is real? You're going to actually have an answer for that. You say, no, actually, we can look at the world around us. And if you look at it this way, you can give them these, these evidences, and they go, wow, there is actually something to this. You actually don't check your brain at the door every time you go to church. Uh, there's substance to your faith. And so being prepared. And so that's what I want to exhort and encourage you in. This is a bit of a, a lighter, um, more of a, just a, a topical uh, head knowledge type night. I get it. Um, but I want to encourage you. Things like this will uh, strengthen your faith. It does for me. And so take the time to study about this amazing uh, document we have called the Bible. This amazing uh, letter from God to us. And you will be continually amazed at, at how it can only be penned by our Creator. And you'll be all the more confident when you have the opportunity to share your faith that you truly stand on something that's for real and that's worth sharing and that people need to know. So I'm going to excuse you a little early tonight, but why don't we pray and give the rest of the evening to the Lord. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that your word is so faithful and that it is accurate that it isn't just full of nice lessons and illustrations and, and metaphors, but that it is, we can count on it historically, scientifically, and spiritually, that it is your perfect word. And Lord, I pray that we would take it at face value 100%. Lord, may we not be doubting, as your word says, that we would be tossed to and fro by the wind, but that we would be steadfast and movable, that we would be looking forward to your kingdom, that we would run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking to you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I ask your blessing on our fellowship tonight and as we go out from here. In Jesus' name, amen.